Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to 3CR Queering the Air. I am your host today, Jacob Gamble, um, and it's a pleasure to join you on the airwaves this afternoon. We're going to start off our show with an opening track. This is Be the One by Sunday. So that was Be The One by Sunday, who is a, a local Melbourne NAM-based artist. Uh, you can check her out. Sunday, it's just uh, like today, Sunday, um, for spelling. So before we get into it, I want to acknowledge that we are broadcasting today on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I want to pay my respects to Elders past, present, and emerging, and to any Indigenous listeners tuning into the show today. Um, so welcome to Queering the Air. Uh, my name's Jacob, and we've got a fantastic show coming up for you. So 
at 3.15, we are having a, a live interview with Richard Keane, who is the CEO of Living Positive Victoria. So for those of you that don't know, on Wednesday this week, it was World AIDS Day, um, which is a day to, to raise awareness of issues surrounding HIV and AIDS. So we're going to be having a really great chat um, with Richard at about quarter past three on that. We're also going to be playing a segment um, that was broadcast earlier this week on Wednesday Brekkie about the religious discrimination bill that is currently being debated in the federal parliament. Um, and later on, we're going to be hearing an intimate conversation by Hunter Dillon, who is a trans mask uh, sex worker who also has a chronic disability. Um, I think it's important that we hear from people who are living on the intersections of both disability and queerness, because that's what we're all about here at Queering the Air, intersectionality, um, anti-capitalism, anti-racist, pro-feminist, which we love to see. Um, So it's a great day to be doing a radio show. If you are tuning in um, and you have Twitter, maybe you want to give us a tweet, give us a shout-out at Queering the Air and and tell us what you think um, of what's happening uh, so now I'm going to jump right in to a segment. Um, Ella Toombs spoke with Rashan from Community Action for Rainbow Rights earlier this week on Wednesday Breakfast about the Religious Discrimination Bill. Now, this is a bill being debated in Parliament that may privilege certain religious views to the judgment of LGBTQ plus people, women, minority faith communities and people with disabilities. Uh, so take a look. And you're listening to 3CR, and we're now joined with um, by Rishan from an LGBTI group who is going to be protesting on the 5th of December to stop the religious discrimination bill going through Parliament. Rishan, thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. And I guess it would be great to just start off um, knowing a little bit about yourself and the group that you will be protesting with on the 5th of December. Yeah, so um, I'm part of a group called Community Action for Rainbow Rights. Um, Our group has been around since the 1990s, and one of our... The thing for our group is that we think that the only way to win um, LGBTI rights or any kind of social reform is to fight for it. So that's why we've organised a protest on December 5th, and we've also been, you know, central to the Campaign for Marriage Equality in New South Wales, We've organised those protests for years as well. So, yeah, really, really happy to keep going, keep the fight going. Absolutely amazing work that you've already done. So, of course, you're going to carry on going. Um, It's such a huge force of change here. Um, And, Rishan, can you tell me a little bit about the protest that's coming up and this just this religious discrimination bill that is so archaic maybe let's first unpick a little bit of that so our listeners will be very familiar with it and because they they take everything very seriously and they understand what the what the government are trying to do but could you just tell us briefly about this bill yeah definitely so um there's a lot in the bill that is pretty worrying so for example um the bill does list every anti-discrimination law um, at a state and federal level in the country and essentially overrides it if religious institutions or religious individuals can make a statement of belief. So, 
for example, if they, you know, if somebody has a bigoted opinion and they phrase it in a way that shows that it's a religious opinion, then, um, you know, essentially they'll be protected by law to get away with that. Wow. Um, I mean, I don't understand, firstly, how, how something like that has even made it as far as it has, but it, mm. it also has the backing of of Labour and and the Liberals. Am I right in saying that? Yes, I think essentially um, Labour has not come out strongly against the bill. They seem to be hedging their bets a little bit to see where public opinion falls. Um, and they've said that they prefer a bill that is a shield, not a sword. So they, they you know, they support some kind of religious discrimination act. Um, and same with um, moderate liberals as well, who've, you know, come out to say that they're a bit uncomfortable with an act like this. But that's not a strong enough statement, in our opinion, um, because, you know, the bill was, it's basically the purpose of the bill is to appease, you know, the hard right within the Liberal Party to make bigotry great again in Australia, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it overrides anti-discrimination legislation that exists already that we've fought for over the past few decades. So it's just, you know, you need a strong strong opposition to that. Mm. And who are who will be the victim of this bill? Yeah, so... One of the, a really key concern for myself is that, um, you know, uh, employees could be a victim. So religious institutions are major employers in Australia. So the bill lists um, religious hospitals, religious charities, religious schools as well. Um, Catholic schools employ thousands of teachers. And so one of the concerns is that these institutions... um, could bully, harass, discriminate, sack um, LGBTI workers um, or, you know, disabled workers as well under the guise that um, they don't fit with the uh, ethos of the school. This is a concern because just this year we know that at least two workers who have been sacked for um, being gay, essentially. So one example is this year Karen Pack. She was fired from Morling College in Sydney after news circulated about her same-sex wedding. And another teacher, Steph Lentz, she was also sacked by a Christian school in Sydney after coming out. And they were surprised that they were treated this way, but their sacking was legal (laughs) already. Even without the Religious Discrimination Act, it was already legal. So Mm. these are the kinds of cases that we think a religious discrimination bill would make would normalise and would give more legal cover for religious institutions to, to get away with this kind of thing. It's it's amazing that discriminating against people already is legal. To bring in a bill that is going to enhance that, encourage it and potentially be be fertile ground to can, to just escalate it as well. It's just it's just so shocking and that when you bring up teaching in and those institutes that's where my brain first went actually um i kind of thought about teachers and how how that is going to affect them and so yeah thank you for so so giving it some context there but yeah, no problem what so what are what are you looking to do about it um in 
Inkar? Yeah, well, um, we think that it is possible to win against this bill. And part of the reason is that, you know, um, our opposition to discrimination, this is actually majority opinion in Australia. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you know, in a 2018 poll, um, Equality Australia um, commissioned this poll and they found out that 79% of people um, are opposed to religious schools being able to sack staff and, yeah, who are in same-sex marriages. Um, and also, you know, we had a massive victory um, of a yes vote for marriage equality just a number of years ago um, after, you know, consistently eight years of protest, which I think, you know, um, reshaped opinions in Australia and made people decide they would side with equality, um, side with equal rights for LGBTI people. So we think it's possible. We've won the majority, but... You know, the majority can't be passive in the face of, you know, powerful organisations and individuals and the Liberals and in institutions mm -hmm. um, doing what they want. So that's why we want to get active. We want to bring them out into the streets. And we've got a whole range of different organisations supporting us. So all kinds of LGBTQI groups, trade unions, um, progressive faith organisations as well and churches who've joined us, who've endorsed our protests on December 5th. Um, yeah, and we're really excited to get out there and, and keep that fight going. Yeah, that's amazing. And best of luck to you in the protest. So that's going to be in Sydney, am I right? That's right, in Sydney. Yeah, wonderful. And obviously our, our listeners here in Melbourne will be gearing up to fight against that too and we will leave some information on our website just to make sure that our listeners have, have somewhere to potentially go to protest as well but best of luck on in that protest on the 5th of December um, you have our you have our solidarity with you here in Melbourne and um, yeah let's let's change this together wonderful thank you so much for having me today thank you Rashan. you're on 3CR queering the air 8.55 a.m. on the dial, or maybe you're listening in online at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. That was a segment from Wednesday Breakfast. Ella Toombs spoke with Rashan from Community Action for Rainbow Rights about the recent religious discrimination bill and all of its implications for people working in religious spaces. And up next, we've got a very exciting interview. So for those that aren't aware, World AIDS Day was on last Wednesday, the 1st of December. And this is a day to raise awareness of issues surrounding HIV and AIDS. The UN estimates that approximately 37.7 million people are living with HIV across the world. And in Australia, we're quite lucky to have medications to treat HIV However, there's still a fair amount of challenges faced by people who contract the disease. So joining us now is Richard Keane, who is the CEO of Living Positive Victoria. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jacob. I appreciate the opportunity to join you. Not a problem. It's a pleasure to host you. So tell us a bit about Living Victoria, sorry, Living Positive uh, Victoria and the work that you folks do. Positive Victoria was founded in 1988 and it's an organisation that's run by and for people living with HIV. Um, I myself am a person who lives with HIV. I was diagnosed when I was 19 years old back in 1989, so a year after the organisation was formed. Um, and as you could imagine, I've seen um, 
a lot of that 40-year history, I guess. But Living Positive Victoria has a range of programs to support people living with HIV across their kind of lifetime journey of living with HIV. Um, we have a program called Peer Navigation, which is only about five years old, but we partner with our clinical partners uh, in the Alfred Northside Clinic, Paran Market Clinic and Monash in, out near Dandenong as well. And they usually refer recently diagnosed clients into our organisation to get some peer support. Or also we engage with people who might be having a few challenges and have fallen out of care over time. So really I guess the role of a peer is that they have an acute understanding about the complexities and some of the challenges of living with HIV and really do add um, a, a real benefit for people connecting uh, so they don't feel so isolated and so they understand that this is a condition that can be lived with and you can live well and um, achieve your life's full potential. Yeah, wow. It sounds like such a, a long uh, lasting and, and really special organisation and I think the work you guys do is so important, as I'm sure you can attest. It's it's probably quite an isolating experience, um, being living with HIV or AIDS. And yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and as you know, it was World AIDS Day um, on Wednesday, so I'm sure you would have a lot to say um, about this. So, what's the significance of this day to you, and and why do we keep? Um, why should we keep having this conversation around AIDS? Oh, look, I. I think that that's a really important question and it's kind of split into two parts. I guess as we kind of approach that 40-year mark, I can't help but reflect on the 8,000 Australians that were lost to AIDS, um, particularly in those early years. Um, I came out at a time and was diagnosed at a time before there were any effective treatments. And when I was diagnosed at 19, I was told that I maybe had five years and that I should kind of enjoy myself and... Um, take care of any unfinished business and other things. And when you're 19, um, that's a little bit confronting. I was in my first year of uni, so I dropped out of uni. And um, so HIV in some ways put some barriers in in those early years for me and what I thought I could achieve um, across my life. So um, I acknowledge all of those we've lost. And when you compare that, you know, we're talking about COVID now and we're talking about the lives lost in COVID and... Um, it's nowhere near the 8,000 people that we lost to this pandemic. And um, that's been a challenging aspect of it, particularly for some older community members of ours who went through those early years and then facing another pandemic um, over recent years has been really challenging psychologically for people. And um, Living Positive Victoria has been right at the forefront of maintaining connection to those people to ensure that um, we support them in getting through the challenges uh, of COVID over of the second pandemic. Mm, wow, yeah. I... Yeah, and I, and I guess in a modern context, um, as well as reflecting on all that loss and the grief and how challenging it was, it's a completely different uh, situation now here in 2021 in a, a local Australian context than here in Victoria. We have about 8,000 people living with HIV here in Victoria, and we've seen significant decreases in recent years with biomedical advances um, like pre-exposure prophylaxis or PEP, a PrEP as it's well known across our community, which means that um, people who are HIV negative take a pill a day um, to prevent them from uh, contracting HIV. But what is more important for me and um, really quite life-changing for people living with HIV, um, in 2017, the former uh, health minister, 
um, came out on World AIDS Day in 2017 and acknowledged the science and the data and the evidence around undetectable viral load. Now, I've had an undetectable viral load because of the treatments that I take for about 10 years, but that means if I maintain an undetectable viral load, I can't transmit HIV onto other people. And it's become a key aspect of us working with people who've had a recent diagnosis and um, getting them to begin their treatment as soon as possible because not only are you looking after yourself and your own health, but you're potentially looking after the health of others. And something that I thought would never happen in my lifetime is that people living with HIV can now have the healthy sexual and reproductive lives that every other Australian experiences, and it's life-changing and life-affirming. Mm, I couldn't agree more with that, and I think it's it's so important uh, to promote the the U equals U, and I've I've noticed that there's a lot more work happening in, in that space. So it's it's really happy. Well, I'm really happy uh, to see that. And so yeah, you mentioned yeah. um, the the development of, of PrEP and PEP. Um, what have been some of the successes, I guess, for people living with with AIDS in recent years? Um, and I guess the other thing to remember is that um, out of those 8,000 Victorians, about 4,200 of those are now over 50 years of age. And that's the other aspect of HIV that we never thought we'd be dealing with, is people ageing with HIV. And with more than half of our population over 50, and the great successes we've seen with the, the drop in the numbers of new diagnoses over the years, that cohort is only going to continue to grow so at Living Positive Victoria, we've had a very strong focus on um, developing supports for those people who are ageing with HIV, who may have some other chronic manageable conditions that they live with as well. And how do you work through that? How do you age well living with HIV? And um, for your listeners, um, our website is livingpositivevictoria.org.au and I encourage them to jump on and have a look around. And we've just added um, a new section of our website called Well Beyond 50, which focuses on a whole range of areas around ageing well with HIV. And they include things like other conditions that you might be having to contend with and how they impact on how to stay community connected and also to information about you know, end-of-life stuff, and sometimes it's really challenging talking about this, but all those things like wills, um, medical and legal power of attorney, um, a whole range of other things that most people who are ageing um, kind of need to start to consider, and there's a whole lot of information on our website to support people. Wow, yeah, I, I never would have considered uh, what big of an impact uh, ageing would have on people already living with HIV and you mentioned before about the the pandemic having an impact um, in that you know we've already lived through one pandemic essentially, and now there's a second one. Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit more on how COVID nineteen has affected uh, the, the people living with AIDS and, and that community. Yeah, in some really um, challenging ways, and not dissimilar to how it would affect general community members, but part of I guess living well with HIV, there's a very connected and supportive community in, in, in a peer community that's developed around HIV and a lot of people's well-being and kind of resilience in dealing with HIV is to be able to come together with other people with lived experience who kind of understand um, your journey a little bit. Um, and don't get me wrong, everybody's story is completely unique and valid, but when you get around a group of other positive people and you're having a bit of a chat, all of a sudden... 
parts of their storyline, you'll find something that you can relate to or that resonates with you or has been an experience that you've had. And all of a sudden, those conversations start developing ways of dealing with challenges. Like a lot of the challenges that people still face today are the same really human questions that I asked myself all those years ago, like, oh, my God, you know, what does this mean for me? Have I let myself down? Has my behaviour meant that maybe I deserve this or who's going to love me now? You know, who am I ever going to be able to have a relationship with? So those questions are still the same human questions that people ask themselves with a diagnosis today. And so um, in some ways there have been a lot of successes, but... Stigma is still quite pervasive, disease stigma, and I think that that's something that's been reinforced by COVID as well, um, that mm. fear of uh, infection, that fear of disease. Particularly during the first lockdown, I had an older gentleman ring me on the phone and he was very low and feeling very blue and he said, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, you know, we lost 8,000 people. They didn't close down everything for us. They didn't get behind us. They didn't spend billions of dollars and get every scientist to kind of try and find a cure for us. Why was that? And I kind of took a deep breath and I thought, no, actually, I've got to flip this on its head. And I just reminded that individual of what we've been able to achieve under really challenging circumstances. Um, it's hard to convey to your listeners the homophobia and the hatred and and the loathing that was around in those early years and really quite harshly directed towards gay men in particular who were predominantly and disproportionately affected during that time. And I think that despite all the successes and changes, HIV stigma is still a really big challenge. And I think the other thing is for far too long it's been left to HIV-positive people to try and address that stigma. But I think in the broader community, if it's not your lived experience, you kind of put up a bit of a blank wall when you've got a positive person talking about how challenging stigma is and other things like that. And I think we need our political leaders, we need our allies in the community to talk about stigma and to talk about the importance of removing that because it really does... I think that's why people still ask those questions when they get a diagnosis because that mm. stigma is still quite pervasive. Yeah, stigma is um, definitely a massive challenge for sure, and I I have I have so much respect um, for older members of our community because I couldn't even imagine some of the barriers there that you would face not only as a gay man but also as someone who's diagnosed with HIV. Like that's um yeah mad respect there. Um, and you talked a bit about your website before, um, but I'm I've got a bit of a um a multifaceted question for you. No problem. <laughs> um, how can governments, communities and individuals support people living with AIDS? Um, that's a great question. Look, in this country, and, you know, we, we have a whole range of challenges with our governments and our politicians and the decisions they make and whether we agree with them or not, but we've been very, very lucky in this country. Very early on, there was a decision to have a community-led response rather than a medical approach, so that meant that community and people living with HIV have always been part of the response and um, at every level of the decision-making processes that affect our lives and that the response has been non-partisan. And I think that's really at the heart of a lot of success that we've had over that 40 years. And when we look ahead and we're looking to 
potentially eliminate HIV and end HIV by 2030. I don't think it's just that aspirational. I think it is achievable. I think there needs to probably be a little bit more funding rather than stretching it out. I think it's within reach and, and it's really quite empowering to be able to say that. However, every person living with HIV today will still be living with HIV tomorrow until there's a cure. So organisations like Living Positive Victoria that support people across their entire lifetime with HIV will continue to remain um, really, really important. I think some of the things that government can do, though, in the last 10 years, the communities that I engage with have diversified beyond belief. Now more than 50% of new diagnoses are people that are born overseas. And they might have come from a high prevalence region where there's lots of HIV, or they might have come from Southeast Asia where there's really poor and low testing rates. And they may have been living with HIV for quite some time before they're diagnosed when they arrive in Australia. So there's a whole range of complications that come in health-wise and also, too, about connecting to those communities and getting language in their language, information, in-language information is going to be absolutely crucial as we work, work forward. Um, we get some support with interpreters, uh, like at Melbourne Sexual Health, when the peer navs go in and they might have somebody who has quite poor English skills, they'll get an interpreter to come in. But we kind of look at equity as being central to our pathway forward at Living Positive Victoria. And we're working to try and get a little bit of additional funding so not only can someone engage with a peer navigator, but hopefully they might be able to participate in some of our other programs that we run at Living Positive Victoria with the support of an interpreter. Um, but that is quite costly. But um, I guess if I'm looking forward and I'm saying what do we need to do, they're the key things that we need to do. The communities are different. Um, the recent data in the September quarter of 2020, which is the latest data we had, showed a significant drop um, in new diagnoses, but that might have a lot to do with lockdowns and COVID as well. But we're also seeing the numbers of MSM fall away in new diagnoses, and we're seeing actually heterosexual men and women now making up 40% of new diagnoses of HIV. So that's also a significant shift. Mm, it's um, so many moving parts here, and I, I couldn't agree more on your points about equity and accessibility. I think, if anything, the pandemic has illustrated the importance um, of having information available in such a, a diverse amount of languages. Um, so, Richard, yes, it has, and it's reinforced it. And you know um, what we've seen in, and I guess the difference between the two is one felt like it was in slow motion because you got your HIV diagnosis and then you waited to get sick. And there were a number of conditions and it was so different in every person and so individual. Some people got a whole range of conditions, other people fared okay. Um, but it was like a slow march towards being very, very sick, whereas this has been on hyperdrive. Do you know what I mean? So there's a, a little bit different thing, but the one thing that echoes it is that real clear message that if we leave anyone behind, we're all vulnerable. And I think that's the key message of any pandemic, and they affect people at the margins. Any type of pandemic, any type of disease will always affect those people at the margins. Mm, absolutely. Um, well, Richard, that's all I um, have for you today, but do you want to tell us where we can follow Living Positive Victoria on the social medias? 
Absolutely. We have our fantastic Facebook page um, and we share a lot of content across there, really interesting information about upcoming events and a whole range of other things. And again, our website at livingpositivevictoria.org.au. There's a lot of information there and um, I welcome anyone to reach out and engage with it. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on today. Really appreciate your insights. Thank you so much. So that was Richard Keane from Living Positive Victoria speaking on AIDS um, and World AIDS Day. And if you want to check out more of their work, we'll include some links in our show notes um, so you can head to the 3CR website for more information. And we're going to be playing a community service announcement and then I'll be right back. Celebrate a family-friendly New Year's Eve in Yarra. Join us at Edinburgh Gardens North Fitzroy and Barclay Gardens in Richmond for kids' games, sports competitions, lighting installations, relaxed live music and an outdoor cinema. This free, family-friendly event kicks off at both parks at 12 midday. Bring a picnic and ring in the new year with family and friends. Check out the full program at yarracity.vic.gov.au. And remember, City of Yarra Park streets and public spaces are alcohol-free on New Year's Eve. The City of Yarra is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Queering the Air, joined by your host, Jacob. Um, It is 3.32 on your Sunday afternoon. I hope everyone's enjoying themselves with the nice weather. I'm going to go to a track now. So this one is called Mirage, um, and it's by a group called Glass Beams. So that was a little excerpt of Mirage by Glass Beams. Um, so you're on 3CR, Queering the Air. 
up next, we're going to be playing a very special conversation. Um, it's an, an intimate conversation with Hunter Dillon, who is a queer trans mask person, a tattooist, and a sex worker with chronic invisible illnesses who lives in Nam. Um, so this is in commemoration of International Day of Persons with a Disability, which was on Friday the 3rd of December. Now, as we know, people living with disabilities face a number of challenges in our society, having the same quality of life as others. And when you're living on the intersections of disability and queerness, these challenges are amplified. So this conversation was rec- recorded um, for Queering the Airs 3CR Binary Busting Broadcast, which happened earlier this year on Transgender Day of Visibility. Access is love. The following is an intimate conversation with Hunter Dillon, a queer trans mask person, tattooist and sex worker with chronic invisible illnesses who lives in Nam. It was recorded by MV for 3CR's Binary Busting Broadcast on Transgender Day of Visibility 2021. Today's show may contain descriptions and discussions on mental health and illness, othering and queer phobia that may be distressing to some listeners. So if this is a trigger for you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or QLife on 1800 184 527 or contact your state-based service. And with that, here's Hunter. So I identify as a queer, trans, disabled person and I also have dabbled in sex work. Um, I have CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, as well as ADHD, OCD, and PTSD. Uh, PTSD has its own list of symptoms, um, so I'm basically just tired and sore all the time. And then on extra special occasions, I crash, and that usually lasts a few days. Um, but I really just have to navigate what I do with my time so that I can be as healthy as possible. And when you talk about crashing for a few days, can you explain what that means for someone that's not familiar with that term in relation to your illness? Yeah, sure. So when I crash, it feels like I have a really bad illness, like I get body cramps, I get very physically sore, I can't really move, Um, I don't have any physical strength whatsoever. The, The illness itself is for me, triggered by emotional stress. Um, So the fact that I also have PTSD makes the CFS crashes worse because uh, when your nervous system is going on high for such a long period of time, it kind of depletes and suddenly you have no dopamine, you have no energy, you can't even think, you can't recall any information. It's like a, a brain fog and it can last anywhere you know, from a day, for some people it can last months. I'm lucky in that mine usually passes within a few days. Uh, But for a lot of people, they're bedridden for for weeks or months, and the depression that comes with that is, you know, also excruciating. So let's talk about that a bit more. So how do these chronic illnesses, so you have uh, CFS, which gives you the crashes, but there's also OCD and the PTSD. How does that affect you in relation to your other identities, your queer identity, your trans identity and so forth? I think that it it's intersectional because I'm juggling trying to have a community with queer people um, whilst also being 
super restricted in the types of activities that I can participate in. And so it's really hard to be a part of a community when you're sick and tired all the time. And other than maybe social networking, there's really no space for people that have chronic illness to get together and spend time together. We're all stuck to our beds. Um, so it's very difficult to be a part of a queer community or a trans community and maintain friendships with people from those communities when you can't get out of bed. And maybe there could be events that were just like laying in bed, something super low-key where people just watch films and people are aware that, you know, no one here has any spoons, so let's all just sit around together. For people out there that don't understand what spoons mean, can you explain what that means in relation to chronic illness and maybe maybe give an example of how you use that in your daily life? Okay, well... um yeah, so I have to assert a lot of boundaries with the people that I'm friends with. They all know that I have a chronic illness. And for me personally, it's kind of like how much energy you have left. For me, on a daily basis, I have to think, okay, I've got till 2 p.m. to do activities. And then usually I nap from 2 till 5. Because if I don't nap, I have one of the crashes that I mentioned earlier in the evening. So I sleep every day for many hours throughout the middle of the day and then that gives me more energy to then do a few more extra things in the evening. So it's a juggle of social, uh, mental and physical really that you go, okay, well, what, what social things do I need to do today? I need to see this person. Maybe I need to meet this new person that's going to be uh, a high-level activity so maybe I won't have any physical energy for anything else that day. Or if I have to ride to uni one day and go to class for three hours, I'm probably, I can't make plans for the rest of that day because I, I won't have any energy left. And it's about constantly juggling these activities to be like, well, what's the most important thing that I need to get done? And a lot of that means that you leave out social things because, you know, you have to make phone calls, you have to go shopping, you have to cook dinner. So all of these take away little bits of the energy that I have and then I'm just left with nothing. I see what you mean in relation to the restrictive nature of the illness and the way you need to prioritise what some people would view as sort of administrative activities and therefore yeah. you're stripped away of those opportunities to to spend time with community and friends and a sort of yeah. broader sense of self-worth and belonging. And, and this ties in really well with the follow-up question that I want to ask, like the sense of belonging and how you feel you belong in typical and non-typical queer spaces in relation to accessibility and inclusion in these spaces. Can you give a bit more information on that? So typically, uh, I think that queer spaces are provided for queer people. Um, they don't necessarily think about the other disabilities that queer people might have. It's often just left out of the equation. So when I think about trying to be a part of a community, I feel like I don't have the same agency to attend things or be a part of things because a lot of it is maybe nightlife, 
maybe it's, you know, there's a lot of people in one space. And these types of things I feel like I can't go to because it's just too much of an overload for me as a neurodiverse person. So when I, when I go to events, I am aware that the events aren't created for people like me. Uh, so I have to be really picky in the events that I choose to go to. Uh, and I need to, I often will spend time hyperfixating on looking at previous photos from the event so I can look at things like what are the people wearing that are attending the event? How many people are in that room? Um, so that I can in some ways navigate how I look or essentially make myself invisible <laughs> within that space. How can I make myself not seen within that space so that if I do, you know, have a moment where I'm having really bad anxiety, that I'm not the centre of attention, that people aren't all looking at me. Um, so I feel that even when I'm welcome in a space, I, ha I purposefully make myself as invisible as possible so that I'm protected in some fashion because the anxiety is so bad, I feel like it's physically noticeable at times. And then that, you know, I draw blanks. I, I can't communicate with people. I can't think on the spot. I've got nothing to say to anyone. So a lot of that, I think, has to do with the fact that there's, you know, so many people within the room, maybe there's strobe light. And the combination of all these things just isn't catered for neurodiverse people. And so it can be very confronting and uh, scary. So often you just don't go. And then you're excluded. And then you kind of, I suppose when, when you are a person that is neurodiverse, when you are in these situations, you usually beforehand you have this idea of what your social script will be and sort of predetermined yeah. sort of um, encounters you might have and how you might approach them. So when your social scripts are blown out the window, I can see why you feel like you're frozen and you can't interact with someone. Totally. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time in therapy um, and I've learned that, that I can have certain phrases that I just have on hand when I draw a blank, you know, just certain questions like, oh, how was your day today is enough to maybe deflect so that people are no longer looking at me and they're looking at the person who's speaking. And so it was like uh, a thing that I needed to learn was like, hey, have this little script that you just have, you know, in the back of your head at all times and they're your go-tos that whenever you draw a blank, at least you've got these, you know, five different things that you can say so you don't look like a deer in headlights. I suppose, how does the queer community understand the intersections of your identities? I think I'm lucky in some ways that I've gotten to a point in my life where a lot of the people that I spend time with are also members of the same intersectional minority groups that I am. It's much easier to communicate your needs with people that also have their own needs so nobody seems to be put out by each other's boundaries or, or requests. But there was definitely a long period of my life where I was pre-diagnosis for CFS and I didn't understand why I was so tired. I didn't understand why it made me feel sick after I spent time with people that I cared about, my friends, my family. 
Um, I didn't really get it, and so I didn't have any language to explain any of those things. And then your community thinks that you're just, you don't care or, or that you're just cancelling all the time, and they don't really get why you can't go to the thing with all of your friends and, you know, because they don't understand if I go, it means I can only go for a certain amount of time. Everything is on a schedule for me, and people didn't really understand that for a very long time, and so they would just think I was being selfish or, or rude or bossy or controlling. And especially as a transmasculine person, that can come across as being abusive. If you've got you know, all these limitations and rules that you need to set for the people that are in your life, they can take that in a very different way if they don't understand why those things are in place. So there's a huge gap within that part of my identity and the rest of the community. If people have more understanding about why people act the way they act and why, you know, why Hunter has to leave after two hours or, you know, why does Hunter never come on these long road trips? They, they think it's about them. People naturally think, oh, maybe they don't like me or maybe they just don't want to hang out with me. And so then you end up losing friends and you lose community. And it's been, it's been a gift to get a diagnosis and an understanding because it, it allows for behaviours to be accepted. Another thing that we wanted to speak about, because we had a pre-interview and you were speaking about like opportunities and self-agencies and I suppose what I want to know is how you access and navigate public and private spaces, which also can include learning spaces and interpersonal and interdependent relationships and friendships. Yeah, well, I go to La Trobe, actually. I've only just started uni. I started this year. And I've been pleasantly surprised um, on an institutional level. There's been... Uh, a lot of conversations about people's pronouns at the start of class and in introductions, um, which never was a thing back, you know, when I went to school. Um, there's lots of access to unisex bathrooms. Um, the staff seem to have at least had some form of pre-educational teachings before I've arrived there. So it's really easy to not have to navigate my gender in that space, which is very different. Because uh, in most institutional spaces, say work, uh, I was a barista for a long period of time, um, I was stealth at work about my gender and about my sexuality also. Um, because people make jokes and they think it's funny and they think it's appropriate to ask you inappropriate questions and... Sometimes it's just easier to not say anything at all. Uh, and so it's nice to be able to be in a place where people ask you, what's your pronouns? Oh, cool. And it's just nothing. And then there's no explanation. There's, there's nothing more. And so that's been really great. Um, also, as far as Latrobe's concerned, they have a great mental health department or, or disability department. Um, and so I'm able to get extensions, I'm able to get, uh, I guess, a bit more assistance than maybe other students get. Um, they take a little bit more time out to explain things to me. Um, I only have to say, like, oh, I have ADHD, sorry, I can't recall information. And they're like, oh, no worries, here's a prompt for you. Like, they're kind of, they just seem more aware that, um, that people learn differently and that people's brains work differently and 
And yeah, it's been a really great surprise. They also have like lots of elevators. <laughs> so I don't have to walk up and down flights of stairs and, you know, from one side of the uni to the other. So that's been really good for my physical body. And on that, let's talk about mm-hmm. your experiences in healthcare with clinicians. What has that been like? <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> um, there's, this is, a, I guess, a really big question because I'm 35 now and I've been on testosterone since I was 24. Right now, my biggest hurdle that I'm facing is NDIS. It is an absolute joke. They don't seem to... Um, to accept any of the letters that I've provided that, you know, um, indicate how in, how I suffer and in which ways. Um, they've made it very difficult and I've been denied many times and had to appeal many times and I'm still appealing and I've heard that it can take a year to a year and a half before they will, you know, approve you and that it set up essentially for you to fail and that the sicker you are, the harder it is for you to actually get access to the the help that you need. It's just not set up for people that are queer and also disabled. So they just expect you to be able to go and see any psychologist or any psychiatrist. But as a person who's queer and a sex worker and a polyamorous person, Finding a psychologist that gets all of that and doesn't think, oh, you're a person who just hates yourself and that's why you're a sex worker or, you know, you don't feel that you're worthy of love and that's why you're polyamorous. Like those theories and feelings being put on you can be very dangerous. Um, And I've had to go through countless experiences of that to land on somebody who I was able to you know, actually be honest and open about all of the different intersectionalities of myself and have them be able to help me. And then, unfortunately, they resigned after 11 months. And so I'm still, I'm now back on the hunt looking for both a psychologist and a psychiatrist. Um, and NDIS just think, oh, I'll just go to anyone. Um, I don't realise that just going to anyone is traumatic. It is damaging and it leaves scars on you that you can't heal from <laughs> and and that's all from a medical profession you know so I don't understand why there's not more training why the medical professionals not understand these intersectionalities why are they not trained on what it is to be transgender I shouldn't be having having to explain what transgender means to my clinicians I I had a cervical cancer scare. Now, as a trans person uh, getting surgery on, you know, their genitals and their uterus and their cervix, and it's very um, distressing already. Uh, And I thought, you know, I'll just go in, I'll get the surgery done, and I'll get out, and everything's going to be fine. And I amped myself up for it, and I, I... got into the hospital and I had about two hours to wait before I went under the knife and I had to spend the first half an hour of my time there um, being what felt like accosted with questions about my genitals, about my sexual identity, 
about my transition, about the tattoos that were on my body and how they maybe don't have the same body type that I now have and how funny that is, you know, that they're stuck on me forever. And um, I, th these were questions coming from the nurse that was sitting with me whilst I was waiting to go in. Um, I got to a point where the questions became so intrusive and intense that I started to disassociate. And for about an hour and a half, I sat there disassociating, uh, pretending to be asleep, whilst not thinking about the fact that I was about to go into surgery, you know, a time in which I should have been able to sit, plant, like, you know, preparing myself for this big surgery I was about to have. I, I was forced to disassociate from due to the fact that this person felt entitled enough to ask me whatever questions they wanted. I became just this experiment, this thing that was laying on the table and felt horrible. Thank you for sharing that experience with us and feeling open and comfortable to share that because that is an ongoing issue for trans and gender diverse people. So I'd like to end with a question that connects back to one of your answers. You were speaking in relation to not engaging with community because of not having enough spoons or the energy or the capacity to go out and how that has affected your relationships outside in the community. How can we interact better with people who are neurodivergent and have chronic illnesses? How can we be better allies and, and better community members? Great question. There's probably more conversations that need to take place. I think that's the answer. I, I don't have the answer, but I imagine that if people were to have more conversations with, you know, people like me, like this, then people might understand. I, I guess uh, it makes me think about um, people with hearing disabilities, for example, they may provide an Auslan interpreter, but we're kind of stuck in this cycle of people going, well, what if there's no one deaf here anyway? Then we've just gotten this person out here for nothing. And, you know, they're mostly not deaf anyway, so we may as well not get one. Um, and then that creates, you know, well, no deaf people are going to come because they can't access the thing. Um, and so it's this cycle of, like, People go, oh, we, sh we don't really need it because maybe only one or two people here will, will need it. Well, but if you made it accessible, then maybe 50 people will come <laughs> that need that thing. And so how can people help create spaces for, for me and for other people like me? We'll have conversations with us and say, well, what would you need at a party? If I was going to have a party and this is what the party was going to be, what would be helpful for you? You know, and then if 10 people have the same idea, include that in your event. Yeah, maybe just that, you know, I'd like to party too. I want to go to things too. I, I want to be involved and, and it'd be really nice if, if there were just heaps more things that I could go to. That would be great. Cause like, just because I'm sick and just because I'm tired doesn't mean I don't want to party. 
You're on 3CR, Queering the Air, and that was an intimate conversation with Hunter Dillon, who is a queer, trans mask person living with chronic invisible illness in Nam, Melbourne. And that was recorded for 3CR's binary busting broadcast on Transgender Day of Visibility earlier this year. And that brings us to the end of our program today. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening in. Uh, we've had a, a fantastic show speaking with Living Positive Victoria about World AIDS Day. Um, and we also played a segment earlier on the Religious Discrimination Bill. So if you want to um, check that out again, you can visit the website 3cr.org.au forward slash queering the air. And up next is Salam Radio Show. Stay tuned. <laughs> 